It's another wonderful day to talk hops and spirits. I'm your host, Jonathan Green, and this is the Hops and Spirits Podcast. Joining me in a little bit to talk that spirit side, um, more specifically a little bit of bourbon, is Brent Elliott, the master distiller for Four Roses Bourbon in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. He'll be joining us shortly. Uh, we'll also be having another six-pack, uh, and that one will be probably a little bit more on the hoppy side. Remember, you can find Hops and Spirits on Instagram and Facebook at Hop Spirits, all one word. And also, I want to thank everyone who participated in our giveaway. We'll announce the winner on Friday morning on our uh, Instagram page and Facebook page. So be on the lookout for that. And also be on the lookout for some more great giveaways coming up. And remember, we're sponsored by One Sip Beer Review. One Sip Beer Review. Find them on Instagram. They do daily beer reviews, cider reviews, you name it. They do it. And they also have some fun along the way, including giveaways themselves. So find them again at One Sip Beer Review on Instagram. All right, let's get to the six pack. Joining us now on the Hops and Spirits podcast for a six pack of questions is Kenzie Bernhard, host of Boys Are From Mars and a women and beer podcast. I think she's also a craft beer lover. Kenzie, thanks for taking some time. Not a problem. I, and yes, I am a craft beer lover indeed. Well, then I have a feeling I know how you're going to answer my very first question. I'm, I'm asking everyone the same one, beer or bourbon, uh, or just spirits in general. What 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 are you drinking these days? Beer. beer. I, I <laughs> so I was born and raised in Kentucky, but I have not found a taste for bourbon yet, which it's kind of a bit, not embarrassing to say, but um, I appreciate it. I know your good bourbons from obviously your you're not so good bourbons or you're, you're, you know, you're vintage, you're pappies, but taste wise, I have not gotten to bourbon yet. So I, beer would be definitely be my answer. And then what, what's your kind of go-to these days, you know, that, that you just kind of always have around as far as beer? Well, I always, I would say 90% of the time it's a Kentucky beer. Um, obviously working in the industry in Kentucky, I'm very partial to Kentucky beer but um, I would just say what I'm normally drinking, West Coast IPAs are my favorite. Um, the whole hazy New England's, I like them. They're okay. But um, if I'm picking a beer off the shelf, it's probably going to be a West Coast because those are my favorite. So you, you mentioned you, you, know, you love craft beer. You're even kind of in the industry. What drew you to craft beer? Because, I mean, you're not, you don't just enjoy good beer, but you've you bartended. You've done stuff for the right. Guild. What drew you to craft beer? Um, so I guess with my family, we, they always, like my parents growing up, they were always beer drinkers. I never really saw wine in our house. Um, obviously they drank bourbon and some hot liquor, but growing up, you know, wine was never something I thought to drink. Um, and then even when I got into college, it was always beer, you know, Miller Lite, Bud Light. Um, but just, you know, I went to school at UK, so being in Lexington and going to the breweries around Lexington at the time, it was West Six, Country Boy, Blue Stallion, Mirror Twin, some of the other ones were just getting started. I just really loved, like, the community aspect of these breweries, um, the kind of chill vibe of a tap room, you know. I wasn't really into the bar scene in college, so to be able to go to a brewery and just kind of sit there and hang out and have a beer or two, whether it was doing schoolwork or... I was a journalism major, so writing, um, it just really attracted me to the brewery craft beer scene because it is kind of laid back and not so crazy. And, you know, it's more of a friendly environment, not to say that the bar scene isn't, but, um, just kind of, like I said, the, just the community aspect of breweries and, um, employees always wanting to help each other out, even at like the brewery right down the street, you know, there's, there's competition, but it's not like people willing to help each other out. So, and then just the taste of beers, you know, it's something different. Um, as someone who doesn't really, you know, I tell people all the time, I, I drink three liquids, coffee, and I drink my coffee black, water, and beer. So <laughs> beer's the one thing that kind of gives me flavor throughout my day when I'm, uh, you know, drinking liquid. So it's, you know, there's just, it's such a diverse, like, style of alcohol you know every beer is different so uh, just kind of those different aspects of craft beers what really drew me to it and in the industry as a whole and then kind of piggybacking on that what's some of the, the maybe the best city or even brewery that you've been able to visit so far obviously travels a little harder nowadays mm -hmm. but what's the best place that you've got to go and either try beers or just you know enjoy so i've been to Asheville, which 
um, is someone who, who drinks craft beer, um, you should definitely go. I mean, you walk five feet, you hit a brewery, you walk another five feet, you hit another brewery, and it's just, it's amazing. I went at the end of April, so the weather was amazing, and you could just walk around, and um, you, it, you can just walk from one brewery to another brewery, and you can hit 10 breweries within a mile, and it's just, it's kind of crazy how many breweries are in such, like, a small area, and it all works. Um, so definitely Asheville, you know, I went to New Belgium and Sierra Nevada when I was there, and, you know, it just blows your mind to see how big it is, and I remember we did a tour and I literally stood there watching their like their like canning and bottling line and just being amazed just like oh my gosh nobody touched there's no like hands-on part of this canning line and just from working at small breweries and seeing like hand hand bottling one bottle at a time hand labeling one bottle at a time just to see these huge bottling and canning lines is amazing so I would definitely say Asheville just because of Sierra Nevada in New Belgium and how big the facilities are and just being blown away by those tap rooms. I was going to say, you can tell you you're a little bit of a beer nerd when uh, the canning line is, is a great part of the, uh, of the trip, but I get it. I get it. It's kind of mesmerizing. I totally get that. And a, a second part to this, if you, if you listen to our podcast, you probably know what the answer is to this, but if you haven't, where would you like to go visit? Yeah. So at the end of my podcast, I always ask um, my guests if, uh, they could go on any beer vacation, where would it be and why? And, you know, the cool thing about it, everyone gives different answers, but mine would definitely be Belgium. Um, I think just the history there and the traditional breweries, and I really like some Belgian, um, some of those those sours, um, the, uh, the Lambics and stuff like that. So definitely be Belgium. I had a friend go there a couple years ago, and he said it was amazing. Um, so it would definitely be Belgium. And, you know, if I'm over there, maybe go to Germany and some of the other close countries. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say that's the beauty of that area. You can kind of instead of just like brewery hopping, you can like country hop yeah. over there. So, so, so that could definitely happen. You, you've done some bartending. Um, I know that's your your newest gig is taking you to Louisville. Yes. What's the craziest thing that you've experienced while bartending? I mean, do people just come up to you and just tell you their life problems, or um, you know, or is it just fun random chat getting to know people? I think it's you know. <sighs> That's a hard question because I've, <laughs> I've been bartending for now, I guess a long time. Obviously if you work in the craft beer industry, you bartend at some point um, or you do it on top of your, your regular job. I think just like finding out some stories from people and just how small the world is. Um, I'm so I went to UK, but I also really like LSU as a school. And I remember I was bartending one time and this guy comes in, he's wearing a, an LSU polo. And so we started talking about, Coach O, Coach O, Coach O, and the LSU football team, and I think it was this past year. So when they were they were really good, obviously, and they ended up going on to win a national title. But I found out he's like the head of the like ticketing office, the sports ticketing <laughs> office at LSU. And I had been telling, I was like, didn't even know that. And before, I was like, yeah, I'd love to come for a night game in Death Valley, like it's on my bucket list. And then before he leaves, he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, if you ever come down, like give give me a call me, give me an email, like gives me his business card. So I, and I still have it. And this was like, I guess in the fall. So it was a while ago. And obviously, unfortunately probably won't happen anytime soon, but just the, just this, like just how small world is. And you can literally find, you know, some kind of connection with somebody or, you know, you're just talking to someone you don't know. And then it finds out that they're like the head ticket person at LSU after you've been saying you wanted to go to a game talking to him for like 30 minutes um so just stories like that is what really makes it a truly you know fun thing to do is being a bartender because with breweries you know you have a little bit more time to sit there and talk to the customers um obviously when it's not super busy but um just you know it's a very personable a uh, job so just be able to have a conversation with them and you know hear their story if they're from out of town why they're in town um especially for them um, when he walked in with the LSU, uh, and he was actually, so this is when I bartended up here in Northern Kentucky. He was, him and his son were going to, around to all the MLB stadiums. So they're in Cincinnati going to a Reds game. So, um, it was just a really interesting, uh, one of the cooler stories that I've had while bartending. That's awesome. Cause you would think, you know, if you were down in Lexington, obviously maybe LSU is playing yeah. a, a game, but up there that that's kind of, kind of, uh, it is a small world. I, I must say that, um, we all have one of these um, 
nowadays it's a podcast it's, it's so, so i like to joke but you launched one that i i've enjoyed it's boys are from mars and a women and beard podcast what made you do something like that and be a little different um than say your typical just talking about beer yeah um obviously being a female and in this industry you know we're subject to you know sexist remarks or you know um i so i was a journalism major in school at UK and I always want to do sports journalism. Well, that's a male dominated industry. And then I transferred over to craft beer and that's a male dominated industry, you know, cause when you think of a craft beer, you think of white dudes with beer beards. Um, and so I just wanted to use, you know, my a platform, you know, everyone's like, you should start a podcast. You should start a podcast. And I'm like, no, like I don't really have time for that. Well, I think with COVID and then losing my job, um, it took me a while, but one, I'm one day I was just like, I'm going to start a podcast where I'm just going to talk to women in this industry and women only. And with everyone having a podcast, you know, I wanted to find that one niche. Um, so unfortunately no guy will ever be on my podcast. <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I'm sad I, about that. <laughs> I know I have a bunch of like friends who are like, I'd love to come on. I'm like, well, I'm only doing women because, um, uh, not that we don't have a voice. It's just highlighting those voices. And only, and again, you know, a lot of people have podcasts. So to find that one niche that kind of keeps, that stands me out from other just regular beer podcasts. And that way I can talk about their experiences. Um, and, and I've talked to people who don't even work in craft beer. Um, I think it's there. They just have a, you know, a, um, like a brand that they review craft beer, you know, they just, so it's just highlighting all aspects of the craft beer industry from a women's perspective. And I've really enjoyed it so far. You know, I've talked to brewers, talked to owners, um, I've talked to just bartenders. So it's, um, I've talked to just, um, people who have a voice in the craft beer industry because they drink it and they've got some, you know, followers on Twitter, you know, they're ambassadors, I guess you would call them, um, or influencers, I guess is the word. Um, so it's been a really fun experience. Um, it was my first time doing a podcast of that sort and I've done I think I just recorded my seventh episode yesterday, seventh or eighth. Um, I've already lost track um, and it's been super fun and uh, I'm really enjoying it. So I guess I'll plug it because that's what we do, right? Uh-huh, um, exactly. So it's Boys Are From Martin. You can find it on Apple's Spotify. And I just realized it's on Google now. So there was somebody asking me if it was on Google. Um, but yeah, it's awesome. been fun. Yeah, and boys are from Mars, and it's a it's a fun listen. It's a different listen, and you learn a lot. My last question for you as we finish off the six pack is, I know you've only had a few, you know, less than you know, uh, ten episodes. You haven't got to talk to a ton of people yet, but who's who's the coolest person you've got to talk to so far? Well, thankfully, you know, being able to, I've worked in this industry and I've met a lot of people. Most of my guests are people I know, um, I've met personally, or have just you know, known about for a couple years within the Kentucky industry, but I got to interview, uh, she's known as Afro beer chick on social media, but her, her real name is Shalanda, Shalanda White. Um, she's up in Chicago. Um, and she's, so I don't even think she works in craft beer or she doesn't work like her day job in craft beer, but she's involved in like pink boots, uh, girls pint out up in the Chicago area. And she's really created a voice for black women in craft beer in the Chicago area and then just in general. And I've followed her on social media for a while on Twitter and Instagram. And I just really liked the content she was putting out, you know, some of the things she was speaking on about being a woman who, a black woman who drinks craft beer. And then she also um, unfortunately went viral, I guess, last fall because she received a very hateful racist email saying that there was no place for people like her in the craft beer industry, which started this whole movement called hashtag I am craft beer, where people were posting, you know, who they are in this craft beer industry saying craft beer is for everybody. Um, so it was really cool to talk to her um, and talk about that movement that went and then also what it's like to be not just black, but a black woman in the craft beer industry when it is typically a white dominated industry. And then also how we as people who have voices can help diversify the industry as a whole as well. Um, I was kind of like starstruck in a way to talk to her. I kept like fumbling my words and I'm like, what is going on? Like, (laughs) so she was kind of like my first celebrity, I guess you could call it, or somebody I didn't know personally 
um, to be on my podcast. So she was really cool. Um, she definitely opened my eyes on things we can do as people who work in this industry to help diversify it. And uh, she's really cool. She loves bourbon too. Um, her and her husband actually have a bourbon podcast. So it was able to cool to be able to talk to her a little about some Kentucky things other than just beer. Um, so yeah, definitely her. Afro Beer Check on social media. Check her out. She's really cool. I was going to say, I really enjoyed that one because I, I learned about putting, you know, a little bourbon in beer and um, to the point that I hadn't heard of her before and I might have to have her uh, on the podcast down the, <laughs> down, down the road. Uh, and beer. Yeah, absolutely. Kenzie, uh, the boys are, boys are from Mars and Women in Beer podcast. You can find on Apple, Spotify, Google. Uh, it's worth the listen. And Kenzie, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Jonathan. I, like I said, I, it's unfortunate you can't come on my podcast, but uh, rules are rules, aren't they? Thank you again to Kenzie Bernhardt, host of Boys Are From Mars and a Women in Beer podcast for opening up a six-pack of questions with us here on the Hops and Spirits podcast. If you haven't checked out her podcast, like I said, Boys Are From Mars and it's on Apple, Spotify, Google. It's a great uh, listen. It's a Women in Beer podcast and it's a definitely a unique perspective for those that love craft beer and want maybe just a little bit something different. Uh, coming up here in just one second, I'll talk a little bit of bourbon, a little bit of the spirit side, but remember you can find the Hops and Spirits podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, iHeart, so many more. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hops Spirits, all one word, at Hops Spirits. So what are you waiting for? Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. And joining us now on the Hops and Spirits podcast from Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, home a Four Roses bourbon is Brent Elliott, their master distiller who took over that role in 2015. Brent, thanks for taking the time. Hey, my pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Now, you, you took over in 2015, but you've been with Four Roses since 2005. Um, I always kind of like to ask this question. I mean, do you think you have like one of the coolest jobs in pretty much all of the world? <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's hard for me to complain about my job. I guess that's the only complaint about my job is I'm, I'm not allowed to complain because nobody wants to hear it, but, uh, it, it's a great job. Yeah. I'd never dreamt I'd be in this position. Um, it's doing something that I love applying, you know, my background's chemistry. So obviously I like science and I like you know, knowing how things work on that level. So it's going to combine that with Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey and, now get to talk a lot about it, you know, go out and meet people and, you know, host groups of you know, people that are, you know, from people that don't know anything about bourbon and just want to learn to true aficionados. So it, it's fun. The interaction, the job itself, yeah, it's, it's got to be one of the best jobs out there. I mean, you, you kind of touched on a little bit, especially now in your role as master distiller and, and things like that, you get to go out and do more things. I mean, What's it like being part of bourbon these days? Because, I mean, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, bourbon is not what it is today. But nowadays, I mean, like, I mean, people literally, it's like a adult tourist, you know, Disney World to come to Kentucky and check out all these bourbon places. I mean, are you like a rock star to some of them? Well, it is weird. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, like I said, 20 years ago, um, you know, here in Kentucky, we were all we were proud of what we were doing. We knew bourbon, we knew the industry, but um, none of us imagined that the spotlight would be on us the way it is today, and so many people would be interested um, that we have a bourbon trail that has you know, over a million visitors each year, you know, coming just to tour the distilleries. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, I never thought it would blossom to this. I, you know, like I said we always knew we had something special here, but I feel like it's kind of like the rest of the world's kind of taking notice. And, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. Absolutely. I mean, do you, do you get recognized anywhere you, you go? Like, Hey, he's the master distiller for, for four roses. I, it's maybe happened a few times, but that's <laughs> <laughs> not like any uncomfortable level or anything. <laughs> and a few times it's been like in airports where, um, it, sometimes in the Lexington airport, actually it ties in with tourism. Like if I'm you know, hanging out in the airport, somebody might get off the plane that's actually in town to do the bourbon trail or maybe specifically to come see Four Roses. That's, that's happened a few times. It's like, hey, we're coming to see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But um, 
no, no screaming yeah, fans it's running always... up, up wanting an autograph or anything like that yet. <laughs> no, no. Fortunately, it's nothing that out of control. Now, now you've been with Four Roses since 2005, um, and you, you've done a lot of different things. You, I'm assuming, put that chemistry degree to work first and then built your way up to now being master distiller. What's that journey been like for you at Four Roses? And I'm guessing you've done just about a little bit of everything for them. Uh, yeah, you're right. When I started, um, I was specifically hired just to start up a laboratory here. So it was purely you know, based on my chemistry background. And, but at the time, we had just recently come back to the U.S. as a straight bourbon whiskey. And we had pretty much a skeleton crew working here. Because prior to that, we were, we were still huge in Japan and, and Europe, but we weren't distributing here. So we didn't have the infrastructure for marketing or human resources or even the depth of quality control that we have now. Um, because we're, prior to that time, we were part of Seagram's, which had all those auxiliary, those support departments and groups. So we were really just building from the ground up. So that gave me a lot of opportunity to pitch in anywhere that help was needed, to learn, uh, to shadow, to, and everything from you know, marketing. I would go out, my wife and I, before we had kids, we'd go out and just do tastings on the weekends. Um, just help promote the brand or you know, working on you know, everything from the bottling line to the, the dry goods to the finished product, you know, just anywhere that we needed help. And back then we were growing, we were growing rapidly. Then there was always um, the opportunity to pitch in and help somewhere and learn something. So that's kind of how, um, you know, I grew up with the company. I sort of grew alongside it as we, Add more resources, more um, capacity, you know, the distillery, the bottling facility, uh, more human resources. You know, just as we grew, um, you know, I was just lucky enough to kind of be in on the ground floor. And um, the the journey, my journey through these last 15 years, really parallels this brand's journey since we've come back to the U.S. And when I started, that was – you know, 2005, we were only available in the state of Kentucky in the U.S. And um, so shortly after that, we started adding more states. Um, within you know, five years, we were in all 50 states. So during that period of time, we saw a lot of growth, but a lot of that could have just been attributed to entering more markets. And um, we were working on a small volume. But then we started to notice that um, we had already – we had our products in every market – and we started to see real growth, like substantial numbers. And we were still seeing substantial growth each year on those numbers that were becoming more and more substantial. So it was kind of like a, a self-feeding success story. Like we just kept kept accelerating um, our sales. And um, it's been a wild ride. Like from the day I started, it seems like we're always – just doing our best. Our primary goal is just to, to keep up with demand, um, maintain the, the quality, and still maintain the, you know, I think a lot of our personality that's gotten us where we are, which is you know, we're very accessible to consumers. We try to listen to consumers. We, um, you know, just we try to stay in touch. So that's really been kind of the, the last 15 years. It's just been playing catch up, just trying to, to stay ahead to, to satisfy that demand, which is really the U.S. is where it's been growing. The Japanese and European markets, those are mature for us, and we've been over there for decades, but you know, we're still relatively new, or we especially were, were new when I started to the U.S., so this is really where all the action is, where all the growth is for us. Well, and now for, for you, you know, you kind of talk about you, you had the chemistry degree, things like that. Did you ever think you'd be a master distiller, you know, <laughs> something like that? I mean, when you were in school, is that, you know, what I want to grow up to be it was master distiller on, on, on your, your line there? Or how did that come about? No, looking back, I'm one, I wonder why I never even considered the bourbon industry at all out of school. I guess it was probably um, 
it seemed too good to be true. It's like, oh, some, you got to know somebody or you know, got to get lucky. It's like hitting, hitting the lottery. I've never even thought about um, taking my degree and getting into um, distillation or into the bourbon industry. And um, the first time it occurred to me was actually in 2005, just a few months before I came to Four Roses. I was living in Tennessee at the time, and I came up with my wife where it was like a family trip. So I came back home and I took a tour of Woodford Reserve. And that was when it first occurred to me. I was like, you know, I could conceivably get a job here at the distillery. They, they have to need chemists. And um, so that very next day, actually, that was on Saturday. On Sunday, I got online and I found a posting for a job, which ended up being Four Roses. And it was an entry level chemist position. And so that was the first time I realized, you know, it's like, wow, this happened. And I do remember when I first started, I was like, you know, there, you know I met Jim Rutledge. He was the master seller at the time. And um, I remember thinking, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, some, some time, you know, distant in the future, I had the opportunity to be master seller. But I didn't really think, you know, it was another one of those was, that's, it's too far out and not, don't even tease yourself, those kind of thoughts. <laughs> um, so, but as, as time went on, um, I still never really thought about it or let myself consider that. Um, for one, you know, Jim was, or still is, so passionate about bourbon and loves, loves the industry. And so even though he would joke a lot about retirement or, you know, talk about it, no one really took him seriously. So, I just thought, you know, he's, he's going to be here forever. I can't imagine him not being a part of Four Roses or, you know, deciding to walk away. So I never, even as I, you know, grew with the company and took on more responsibility, um, really allowed myself to think about that possibility. I just sort of did what I was doing and was happy to, you know, work with Jim and the other leadership around here. And so in 2015, when um, he decided to retire and I was actually, the way I found out was I was called into the president's office and she said, first thing she said was Jim's retiring. And I found that hard to believe. And he said, and by the way, you're going to be the next master distiller. So it's just like a double shock. Um, and then she said, you can't tell anybody for after that, a couple weeks, a month. It's like, Oh, that's going to be, kind of tough. <laughs> I was going to say that, that seems like a very easy thing to keep secret, right? <laughs> yeah. Some of the biggest news I've ever received, got to keep it under my belt. But um, so yeah, I guess that answers the question. I never thought, saw myself in the industry, I never thought I'd be lucky enough to, to end up in the industry so much so I never considered it. And then even once I was in the industry, I never really dreamt of being master distiller. And for one, when I did think about it, I would always uh, inevitably think about the public speaking aspect of it and tell myself that that didn't really, that wasn't for me. I didn't want any part of standing in front of groups of people like I saw Jim do all the time and talk for an hour or two hours or more. Um, so it was a job that I thought, well, even if I could do it, I don't think, or were offered it, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I'd want to do it. But um when I was told I was master distiller, I think it kind of <laughs> opened the opened the blinds, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm going to be, and I'm going to give it my best shot, and I'm excited about it." Just because I never really um, enjoyed public speaking or or being in the spotlight like that, but so I figured, well, I'll give it a shot to see how it goes. And it turns out I'm I like talking about bourbon so much that I don't even it doesn't bother me to staying in front of a group or, you know, five people or 200 people and talk about bourbon for ever. You know, it's, if I didn't run out of things to talk about it, I could probably just never shut up. <laughs> We're talking with Brent Elliott, master distiller uh, with four roses, four roses bourbon. And you kind of, to me, it's a perfect lead way because you never thought you're going to be master distiller. Never thought that was the role for you. Well, then you were awarded at the 2020 icons of whiskey America master distiller blender of the year. What was that like? I mean, that had to be a, a great feeling to get that honor. Oh uh, yeah, it was. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was shocked by that, but 
very pleasantly shocked. That was quite an honor, and uh, yeah, I'm still still happy about that. <laughs> oh, and rightfully so, rightfully so. I mean, that's a pretty pretty big thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh no. I mean, I was gonna say. I mean, when when you're honored with something like that, that has to show that what you're doing, you know, is something that you were meant to do. Even if you never thought you were meant to do it, that is what what you you were meant to do, and it's something that you're really uh, excelling at. Well, I guess that's another one of those things I had never even considered. You know, only being in this position for you know less than five years. It wasn't like I watched the awards page waiting for my name to come up. I never thought about it so or considered it. So it was, it was a, again, a great surprise. And and I guess another question I have for you, obviously you've done a lot of different things at Four, Four Roses. Now you're the master distiller. What's your favorite part about your job and working at Four Roses? Because I'm guessing being part of something that you've launched now or been a part of pretty much the whole launch in America you know, it's got to be some pretty cool things to think back on and, and remember. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, there are things that um, I think I'm proud of and the team here is very proud of. And you get a lot of joy from that, just looking at how far we've come, um, you know, how the consumer looks at our product now versus 20 years ago when it was a blended whiskey in the U.S. Um, so, you know, that's where I think, the group here, I think we get a lot of satisfaction and a lot of pride from that. Um, now what I enjoy most, that's difficult because sort of the role of the modern master distiller is kind of unique because again, 20 years ago, it would have been primarily focused just on the production side, um, whether production, um, barrel selections, mingling, whatever, you know, that would help the production side of it. Um, Today, because people are so interested in bourbon, because um, you know, showcasing your brand is so impo- important to, the, to today's consumer, um, my job is you know, one day I'm like, focused on strictly production, and the next day I could be you know, a thousand miles away talking, just educating people on bourbon, or talking about Four Roses. So I'm, I'm kind of really wide and or it's, it's very different day to day for me. So on both sides, and I've got to say, I, I enjoy the, the public side of, of this role because everybody I talk to, um, you know, they're, they're interested. You know, they're, they're not being forced to sit there and listen to me or ask me questions. They're there because they want to be there. And so I'm always dealing with very excited and very inquisitive people and always very, very nice people. So, and, and I get a chance to talk about something that I know and, and love. So that part, that's an easy aspect of my job that I can say is one of my favorites. Um, on the you know, strictly production side, probably the most fun thing I do um, each year is doing the blending for the limited editions. And that's just because I, I love the the whole barrel selection, batch selection, the blending. I love that side of my job. Um, but a lot of that is doing, you know, test blends and selecting barrels and batches to maintain consistency and a certain quality level. Um, with the limited editions, sort of because the way we do things, now probably got to get into this a little bit later, but we have the different recipes and we have a lot of versatility in what we can create in our final products. And that's the product that we do each year that really demonstrates um, how we can create something different and very good each year. And so that's my opportunity to really get creative and the sky's the limit. Yeah, I can work with up to, you know, all the recipes, some of our older bourbons, you know, 10 to 20-something you know, year old batches that we have that are set aside just for this. So that's I really enjoy doing that. It's getting to pull all these different batches together and just, you know, I usually take, I could take forever on them because I just love doing it, just <laughs> putting these together and just seeing what happens. But I usually spend about two months, you know, every day, every other day doing test blends, evaluations, and just getting creative with, with what we have here in our inventory. 
And, and have you always been a bourbon lover or did you acquire that taste over time? Or, you know, I mean, is that something that you've always really enjoyed? Um, I'd like to say yes, but it's, I don't know if you can consider drinking bourbon and Coke in college, being a bourbon lover. I guess so. I guess so. You were a Kentuckian, um, right? I but mean, I, you know. Yeah. And I guess in my defense, you know, at that time, you know, maybe the, the perception and especially the perception maybe of college students in Kentucky wasn't that uh, it was something that you sipped and, and made tasting notes on. Um, but I really enjoyed the flavor of it. Um, you know, mixing it. I don't, I don't recall ever having it um, neater on the rocks then. Although I do remember the first time I tried um, a bourbon neat. Well, I guess I don't know if taking a shot counts as neat. I'm not counting taking a shot as neat. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, the first time I actually sampled, I can't remember what year that was. Probably like '96. I, I could be wrong. It was somewhere in that time period, and it was someone had a bottle of I think it was Knob Creek. And I can't remember what year they introduced that, but you know, before Knob Creek, before the whole um, um, collection that Jim Beam put out, and before you got into the single barrels with, uh, you know, from Buffalo Trace, you know, it was, you didn't have the more specialty bourbons. It was more just, you know, you had your different labels. There didn't exist small batches, there didn't exist single barrels. And so that was really my first introduction into something outside that that standard realm of, of bourbon offerings. And so that was a real turning point for me. And I remember I was actually out of the state. I was in visiting some friends in Colorado and they, they had had a bottle of it. And I just remember that's like, this is fantastic. I already was you know, proud to be a Kentucky and I'm proud of bourbon because of that. And I, I enjoyed bourbon, but you know, that was where it's like, okay, this is, this is another dimension. You know, we can explore bourbon, and bourbon's being explored on you know a higher level than what I thought people previously had been you know enjoying it at. So um, that's about the time that I started you know buying different bottles and actually sort of looking for different characteristics, drinking it neat or on the rocks, um, and appreciating more of the the quality and the the character of bourbon instead of just like at, before I just I like the flavor. I wasn't very particular, whether it was, again, because of my age and experience or just being, you know, that was part of the the mindset of of people and in particular college students at that time. I'm not sure, but um, I really remember, you know, when I turned that corner and just, I thought that was fantastic. So since then, and again, that was you know, late nineties, I've been a, a big fan of bourbon love bourbon since then we're talking with brent elliott master distiller with four roses bourbon here on the hops and spirits podcast and brent you know kind of switching gears a little bit you know four roses has a very interesting history before i dive into that can you tell the legend of how four roses got its name because i think that's a pretty cool story too yeah that is uh our founder paul jones jr he was um he proposed marriage to a lovely Southern Belle several times, and she was, I guess, uh, dragging her feet on giving him an answer. So I said, "This is it. This is my final proposal. Um, you know, will you marry me?" She said, "Okay, I will give you an answer at the upcoming ball, grand ball." And she showed up wearing a corsage of four red roses, which apparently, in there's a Victorian language of the flowers where you can communicate with different flowers and different numbers. I, I don't know any of the the language except that. Four red roses means yes, or it's an affirmative to a question. So she wore the four red roses to to say yes, I will, I'll marry you. And so he named his his uh, brand Four Roses in honor of that occasion. And now Four Roses traces its history back to the late eighteen what sixties, seventies, eighties, somewhere in there. I'm guessing. Um, with, with yeah. Yeah, it's a little hard to find out exactly when it began, but we know it was trademarked in Louisville in 1888. So, so that's that's our official birth date. But Four Roses, for those that don't know, to me it's fascinating because while it started here in Kentucky in the U.S., 
when it you know it eventually left and after and it was big here in what 30s 40s 50s and then all of a sudden it went away which i just that kind of blows my mind but yeah. that's how it happened right that's exactly how it happened yeah um we were yeah one of the top sung bourbons we were actually sold through prohibition um we were one of uh we were part of one of six distilling companies that was allowed to sell um, whiskey for medicinal purposes. We had the license to to sell it during prohibition, um, so which was great. That that kept us in the public's consciousness. And while you know the hundreds of or thousands of labels and hundreds of distilleries um, prior to prohibition, a lot of those were just lost to history. But because we were still out there, we were still a big brand through prohibition. Even um, shortly after prohibition, we became one of the top selling bourbons. And then. Um, that was when we were still under Frankfurt Distilleries, which was the company that Paul Jones Jr. had. Um, after that, um, in 1943, Seagram's bought Four Roses and continued just to, to invest and promote. And so we were, we were huge back you know, from the end of Prohibition up, to, up into the 50s. But then in the late 50s, Seagram's, decided that they wanted to switch what was in the bottle from a straight bourbon whiskey to a Canadian style blended whiskey. And when they did that, they, they still produced the bourbon, but they shipped all that to Japan and Europe. And that's why if you go to most European countries or Japan today, Four Roses is very popular. It's, it's everywhere. Um, but unfortunately for the U S market, we were, what we expected in the Four Roses bottle all of a sudden became a, blended whiskey. Now, you know, we're judging it through, you know, looking backwards, you know, when I'm drinking straight bourbon whiskey, I, I personally don't think I would ever really like blended whiskey much, but the consumers at the time, apparently their tastes were changing. So I guess the idea was to capitalize on the recognition of the Four Roses name and capture the, the changing tastes of the American consumer. A lot of, um, you know, that was the time when vodkas and gins were starting to become in vogue and um, blended whiskeys, which are typically much lighter than a, a straight bourbon whiskey, those were kind of in that same family of the, the softening of the American palate towards spirits. So when they did that, um, initially it was a pretty good blend and Again, this is before my time, but from what I understand, uh, initially it was a, a high-quality, good blended whiskey. And then through the years, the quality and reputation of it declined. And that's pretty much where the brand was when Seagram sold Four Roses in 2001. And that's when Kieran, the Japanese beer company, came in and purchased the brand. And they're still our owners today, and they're, they've been the, the company that's helped um, – you know, establish us here to help you know, give us the financial resources and the expertise to to build our apartments, our facilities, and really helped us to get back to where we are today. And, and that has all happened in the last 20 or so years, right? When they took over and kind of relaunched everything. Uh-huh. Yes. And then now you guys have some different bourbons, you know, you got kind of what you, I guess we call your standard, your four roses. You got your small batch, single barrel, small batch select. You got the limited editions. What's the biggest difference for those out there, you know, between those bourbons that, that you all produce? Um, that's really, you'll have to give me a few minutes to explain that because the differences <laughs> are, it's a little complicated, but it's really interesting if, if uh, everyone out there can bear with me. Um, what we do is, well, first let me say each one of those products has a, a different proof and usually different ages. So you're going to see differences there, but you're going to see a more fundamental difference between each one of those products because of the way that we, um, the, w the way that we make bourbon. So what we do is we actually produce 10 different bourbon recipes and each one of those recipes has a different flavor profile. And the way we do that is in production, we have two mash bills or grain recipes that we start with. Uh, we have a high rye mash bill and then a lower rye mash bill. Um, the high rye mash bill is 60% corn, 35% rye, 
5% malted barley. Emash fill is 75% corn, 20% rye, 5% malted barley. So with those two bases, we, um, we mill, mash, cool, and send one of those two mash fills over to fermentation. And then we will inoculate either one of those mash fills with one of five different yeast strains. And each yeast strain, now they all produce alcohol. They're all very, you know, probably 99.9% .9 similar in all ways, except um, in the different, the finer byproducts that the, they produce through fermentation. And these byproducts are, um, we refer to them as congeners. They're just all the sort of a blanket term for all the different compounds that come out of fermentation besides the alcohol and the CO2. And you've got or higher alcohols, refusal oils, um, esters, acids, just a whole family of these different compounds. And even though they're in their small levels, they're very important because a lot of these compounds have floral or fruity or spicy or all these different characteristics. So these 5 e strains were all isolated and, um, and stored to be used independently to create these different flavors. So with the two mash bills and the five yeast strains, that's how we have the 10 different recipes. So if you're looking at a product like our Four Roses Bourbon, that typically uses all 10 recipes in different proportions. Um, and we're always changing those proportions for consistency. And that, that's originally why, it goes back to Seagram's, that's why they had the different recipes. Because um, with a natural product, and if you know the the guidelines for making bourbon, you can't add flavor, you can't add color. It has to be all natural, which is, I think it's fantastic. I think that's where the, the charm of bourbon really lies is that it's 100% natural. But um, the bad side of that is it's hard to control with absolute precision that flavor profile day after day, year after year, when you're dealing with so many variables. Um, you know, Mother Nature with the, the weather, the wood, um, the you know, there's so much that goes into the grains. There's so much that goes into um, the final product when you take it out of the barrel that um, the 10 recipes was a way for Seagram's to control that final flavor um, by you know, just having control of the different flavor um, components, whether fruity, spicy, floral, whatever. And so we still do that today, and that's so we use all 10 recipes in the Four Roses Bourbon. And then um, Four Roses Small Batch is four recipes. It's uh, both mash bills, and then we utilize the K yeast, which is very spicy, and the O yeast, which is rich and fruity. So that has its own profile. It's a nice blend between that rich fruit and that delicate baking spice. And then our Small Batch Select, it's six recipes. Um, Two of the recipes are shared with the small batch. It's the, the spicy recipe, but then it also has the VE strain, which creates delicate fruity flavors, like apricot, pear, um, you know, light green apple, and um, the FE strain, which is very unique. It creates clove-like, um, minty, herbal-type flavors. So with the different combinations that we use in the small batch select, you're going to get a much different flavor profile than you're going to get from small batch. And small batches can be much different from four of bourbon. And then our single barrel, that is always the 100 proof single barrel is always one recipe. It's the high rye mash fill with the delicate fruit yeast, the V yeast. So it's going to be much different because it's got more rye than our other products since it's only that one mash fill. And it's going to be the balance between that extra bit of rye and that delicate fruit. So again, there are also age differences. Our four of bourbon is five and six year old bourbon, the small batch is six and seven, small batch select is six and seven year old, and the single barrel is at least seven. And proofs are different, they go 80 on the four of bourbon, 90 on the small batch, 104 on the select, and 100 on the single barrel. So that will create some differences to the age and the proof, but the bigger difference that you'll taste if you put these side by side, the biggest difference is gonna be attributed to those different recipes that go into intentionally making each one of those taste different. And, and now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the one that kind of created the small batch select. Is that right? Yes. Uh -huh. what, what was that like? Cause I mean, that, that was another cool. fun part of my job. I mean, yeah, it was, it was kind of like the, um, like I was saying with the limited edition blending, it was an opportunity to 
get creative and create something that was different from our other products. Um, and it was, I think that was probably, I looked at that as, it was a little more long-term as far as the different test blends and the, you know, explorations I made in that. But, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was just knowing that it was going to be a permanent product. So it was kind of like my biggest contribution to date because I was, I was here when small batch was formulated, but I'd been here less than a year. I was, like I say, I was in the room, but I didn't have any real input. I was just kind of watching from the sidelines. Um, you know, Four Roses Bourbon, that profile was established a long time ago. Um, single barrel being the one recipe that that's established. So this was, since this was the first addition to our lineup since 06, um, you know, I, I realized the, the gravity of it. It was going to be a totally new product that would be nationwide. It would be eventually, we, we started out just in five states, and this year we've got 14, but in the next year or two, we'll be everywhere, and it'll be out there you know, forever. So that was you know, a daunting task, but a, a great opportunity, and I had a lot of fun with it. And I'm super happy with the outcome. Most everybody is. We're talking with Brent Elliott, master distiller with Four Roses Bourbon, which is based in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And Brent, before I let you go, I always have to finish finish these off with what's next? What's next for you all at Four Roses? And what's next for, for you, Brent Elliott, the master distiller? Um, well, in the short term, we are going to be releasing our 2020 limited edition small batch um, starting next month. So that's always exciting. Um, for me, we've just completed a huge expansion project. We've uh, essentially doubled our distilling and production capacity. So it's hard for me to look to see the other side of, of this, yet look to, you know, there are a lot of challenges with expansion. You Primarily for me, it's to maintain the quality that we've had, you know, forever. So I haven't really, been afforded the opportunity to be able to look too far out. So I just, I'll keep it simple and say, just, for now, just keep on doing what we're doing. You know, make sure that we keep putting out good, consistent product and um, trying to meet that demand. It's, it's not slowing down. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Brent, you and Four Roses are doing, doing a great job, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. It's been nice talking to you. Thank you again to Brent Elliott, Master Distiller of Four Roses Bourbon in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, for coming on the podcast, talking all things bourbon. Uh, it was a great chat. Also, thank you to Kenzie Bernhardt, uh, host of Boys Are From Mars and a Women in Beer podcast, for opening up a six-pack of questions for us to get this thing started. If you remember, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hop Spirits, all one word, and also look up our sponsor, One Sip Beer Review, on Instagram at One Sip Beer Review. Until next time, cheers, everyone. Cheers.